and welcome to episode four, four, um, that's five, no, four, um, of episode the... Rick. Episode yes. Rick. Yeah. Episode <laughs> Rick. It's much easier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode Rick, aka episode four of <laughs> Zero FX, Zero Fucks, whatever you want to call it, podcast. Uh, I am Amy Stokes Waters. We've got the lovely Rob Lancaster with us again. Um, so, hi, Rick. Welcome. Hi, and thank you. It's great to be here. Excellent. You are actually the reason why we have this podcast and why it's called Zero Fucks, I think. Yes, it was. The, 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 the seed of the idea was sown in your brain uh, by me, but yeah. it's your thing. It's thank your you. thing entirely. That, what I like about that, Rick, is you have, have very cleverly um, passed off any issues that <laughs> come off the back of this to us. I, I only <laughs> said that for legal purposes. I am strictly here as a guest. I am nothing to do. <laughs> I am not affiliated in any way whatsoever. And, yes. and this, I mean, is how the professionals do it. I know. Any resemblance to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. <laughs> So I think today's topic, I think the evolution of cybersecurity, because as much as Rick looks like he's only 22, he has been in the industry for quite a while. Um, and we thought it'd be interesting to get his viewpoint on kind of how cyber's changed since he has, sorry, since you have, I don't know why I'm talking about you in the second person, third person, um, since you have started in the industry. So yeah, shall we talk about that? Um, yeah, so I started in back in the well, my, my first sort of technology job, the job that started me on the career path was 1994. So things have changed a lot in that time. Um, and actually, when I first started, I wasn't in security directly. Mm. Um, I was more involved really in networking and network protocols. That was kind of where and where I was specializing yeah. um, and software support. Um, so actually, my first exposure to what what since then became the world of cybercrime um, was being hit by malware in a corporate environment, um, but not being responsible for security uh, or working directly in cybersecurity. So I remember um, three or four incidents very clearly that that when you look back have become really famous bits of malware like um, like Melissa, Code Red, Nimda, um, Love Letter. Um, one that I remember really specifically because by then I was working in security. I was working in um, for for Network Associates, who ended up becoming McAfee, okay. um, and I was in tech support there, working on um, PGP stuff, Gauntlet firewall, um, encryption, VPNs, um, anything that was under the, the PGP umbrella. Came into work one day, anyway. God, I talk too much, don't I? I'm a shit person to have on shows like this. I yeah. came into work one day uh, yeah. and you talked tried the, right to... the whole point of you being here is just talk. So you know, I thought fine. it was for you. I thought I was here to enable your celebrity. <laughs> um, <laughs> You've been busted, Amy. Yeah, it's like that shit. I said that, and it was a joke. But then I thought, hmm, maybe that's a bit too close to home. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what it is. <laughs> um, I came into work one day and uh, logged in. I had like three different systems on my desk because it was tech support. You have to be able to simulate all these different environments that customers yeah. might have. Uh, and from um, from none of them could I get um, internet access, which was really odd. But working in support, I thought, no problem. You know, I'm the first one in the office today. I'll get it fixed before anyone else comes in. And I, whatever I did, whatever I tried to do, I couldn't get it fixed. So I called the ISP uh, and, and I was saying, you know, obviously we have a big problem they did a bunch of investigation there end and said nothing here are you sure you haven't been hit by a virus or something and being an idiot and a bit self-important because i was quite a lot younger i said you know who i work for you know <laughs> i work for network associates of course we don't have a virus and of course we did have a virus and it was blaster because what had happened um we had a private ip range that didn't belong to corporate um, for, for testing stuff and so we could directly connect without going through the corporate network and so on. And we had lent one of our IP addresses to a guy who worked in uh, internal support, not customer support. And he had set up a SQL server to test, which faced directly onto the internet. 
Um, and I don't remember what year Blaster was, but it was that year. Um, and we'd forgotten that he'd done it. And of course, his SQL server had been compromised by Blaster, which was a worm. And what Blaster did was go and try and compromise every other SQL server on the planet. So it just sucked up all the bandwidth. And that's why none of us could connect. I had to go back to the ISP and eat humble pie. <laughs> a lot of it and apologize for my behavior. But it, actually, that was a good learning lesson as well. Um, so yeah, back then, cybercrime really was, it was like that. There wasn't really a financial element to it. And I, I don't suppose we really even called it cybercrime. Mm. It was criminal. I mean, stuff like NIMDA and Code Red and all of those others were criminal. They were breaking laws with that kind of malware in some jurisdictions anyway. Um, but there was no financial motivation. Well, it was all about um, for kicks, for reputation, for laughs. For yeah, I was going to say, stuff. what do you think the motivation of it was like? It's not financial, but it was, it was, you know, uh, that was where the, um, the cliche of, you know, the person in their parents' basement doing it by themselves. That's where that was born. Cause that's yeah. what it was like. You know, it wasn't a cliche then it was, it was really a like. caricature maybe, but it was relatively true one. Um, so they, they were people testing their abilities and, and doing stuff for fun. And, and it had been that way kind of since the beginning. But it was only when organized crime looked at what was happening and then went, mm, what are the possibilities for us here? How could we use this? Um, the really beginning of 21st century, I suppose, it really started to kick off in a criminal way and it hasn't stopped growing since. Do you, and obviously think, that's, do you think that's when the kind of cyber industry as a whole kind of kicked off as well and when it became kind of more financially motivated because... Again, presuming if it's become financially, when it became financially motivated, it kind of, like you said, took off. So there's a lot more of it going on. The industry did. exploded then for sure. Um, and it was funny to watch that happen as somebody who was already in the industry by then, because the big players are older. I mean, um, Trend Micro, I think, was founded in 1988. They'll kill me if I got that wrong. I think it was founded in 88. We're, we're old. You know, we're one of the, the dinosaur in terms of no, age. excuse me. I was born in 89. You're not that old. 89, okay. No, um, I was born in 89. You're not that old. <laughs> oh, I was born in 1970. Ooh, yeah, you are old. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm older than him. There you go. See? See? I'm Thanks not a lot, Amy. Man. You're welcome. So, and back then it was like, it was um, Trend Micro. Um, Symantec, which was um, born really out of uh, their success came through the acquisition of um, Norton. Mm. Um, and it was Network Associates, which, of which McAfee was, was a part. Obviously, McAfee existed before Network Associates, but they were kind of the big three. And then the other players have also been around for a significant amount of time um, that were kind of like, call them tier two vendors, I suppose, like Sophos, like. Um, like Bitdefender, uh, like F-Secure, all of those slightly smaller um, companies. Yeah. Um, but then there, there definitely was an explosion in, because there was an explosion in criminal um, innovation, hmm. there had to be a corresponding explosion in um, innovation among defenders because yeah. criminals continue to find new and interesting ways to compromise people and systems. Uh, and so you need to continue to find new and interesting ways to stop that happening. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's like the cyber arms race, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you see, and it's, it's. I, I talk absolute shit sometimes, but here I go again. Um, <laughs> when I think about the industry, it makes me think of, of um, you know, physics about the universe, when you, certain theories about the universe anyway, one of them is um, that the universe comes from Big Bang, expands to a certain point and then collapses back in on itself again. And then there's another Big Bang and it's forever doing this. And that whenever I've thought about our industry, it's in those terms, because that's what seems to happen is that you start from almost a singularity of, of, of um, consolidated vendors and abilities. There's this explosion of innovation in different areas. Um, you know, we've seen uh, host intrusion prevention uh, we've seen DLP as a technology. That's my Jack Russell. Um, uh, loads of different kinds of, um, of, of technologies throughout our industry. And then there's this huge wave of acquisitions. Um, mm. 
as the bigger players buy up those capabilities rather than develop them themselves. Uh, and it all gets consolidated again. And then something else happens and there's another explosion of abilities and techniques. And our industry is continually doing this. What do you think the current, where are we now then? Cloud's been a big one uh, for the last, well, for us, we started, um, you know, we decided to make a big, as a, as a company, a big financial bet on needing to have protection for cloud all the way back in 2008, but arguably for just over a decade, the mm. whole industry has been focused on that. Yeah. Um, and that was accelerated by the pandemic as well, because a lot of organizations had to really, um, you know, step change their plans for cloud migration and, and availability of internal things externally as they pushed all their workforce to being um, more remote yeah. uh, out of necessity. So that really accelerated that. So right now there's a lot of innovation around um, cloud because cloud itself continues to evolve. You know, mm -hmm. 10 years ago, if we were talking about cloud, it was infrastructure as a service and you were talking about um, VMware mostly. Mm -hmm. um, but now, you know, we've gone through um, platform as a service um, and software as a service has, has evolved, not just to encompass things like Salesforce um, or Office 365, Google Apps or whatever, um, but to um, to also encompass things like AWS Lambda to have, you know, truly serverless environment where the only thing that you provision as a customer is your code. And then the huge challenge for the security industry is then, oh, shit, how do we do security as code? Yeah. Because we can't ask them to deploy anything in this environment because there's nowhere to deploy it to. Mm -hmm. It has to be as code, it has to be built in. So there's a lot of innovation around there. And I think um, SIM technologies are kind of beginning to fall by the wayside as stuff like XDR takes over as well. And that yeah. started with just a couple of vendors, but it's becoming very, very big mm -hmm. uh, as a part of the industry now, XDR uh, propositions and capabilities. I think the analysts now have you know dedicated XDR um, analyst researchers and um, magic circles or whatever they call their, <laughs> their, um, their publications. Uh, stepping on no trademarks with that. Magic circles is a good one. We should trademark that. We should, we should do. have the, uh, the zero FX magic circle. Um, which would go with the magic circle around the FX, which is rotating in front of my eyeballs. There um, we go. That's that the magic circle. Um, and the other one, which <laughs> is borderline between it's a lot of marketing hype um, and it's actually something really useful, um, is zero trust. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of people talking about zero trust out there, particularly from a sales and marketing perspective. Um, there are not very many real technologies that are sort of I don't know, born in zero trust, if mm. you like. There are a lot of retrofitted things. Uh, but zero trust as a concept, I think, is an unavoidable destination for security right now. Um, eliminating trust from your infrastructure mm -hmm. is the only sensible response to the evolution of cybercrime and attack techniques. Um, and, and you you know, having a zero trust mindset is definitely the right way to architect your forward-facing security. Uh, yes. But like most things, it's abused by marketing, right? It's abused by sales, like most things. I was going to say, I think my experience of Zero Trust is like the Microsoft Zero Trust story, which I think is probably quite a mature one because they've been talking about it for quite a while. Um, but I'm not sure, like you said, how much of it's kind of retrofitted into some of the products that they've got as well, like AAD. Yeah, and it's conceptual retrofitting as well, um, you know, because yeah, Active Directory is definitely a part of Microsoft's Zero Trust story. And most other vendors who want to do something with zero trust and ev almost every organization who wants to do something with zero trust is going to be using ad mm -hmm. um it's a question of making sure that the implementation of it fully fits that elimination of trust mindset because ad in its current form doesn't really meet that criteria um but nevertheless that's how authentication works right now um and, you know, our hands are vaguely tied by the tools that are on offer. Yeah, definitely. I think the other thing that um, would be interesting to talk about is your view on artificial intelligence. Because I did a podcast, not a podcast, a panel the other week mm -hmm. on AI. And I read your Project 2030 document to understand what the fuck was going on. Because I don't really know why I got asked to do the panel on AI. But I said yes to it anyway, because, you know, that's me. Good. 
Um, and then I pretty much plagiarized all of Rick's research when I spoke about it. Um, don't give me that face, Mr. Ferguson. It's I did not hear that. Publicly available information. Um, so yeah, I um, I spoke I spoke quite extensively around AI. Um, but I think your thoughts on it, which were my thoughts, are um, really interesting. Uh, so I mean, AI is I mean. AI is massive as a field. I mean, it's obviously not restricted just to security. Mm -hmm. the, the current emergency use case for AI in our field is in a SOC type environment without a shadow of a doubt. That's where it's going to deliver the most immediate bang for the buck. Um, actually, I wrote some figures down. Let me find them because um, I was fairly sure this thing was going to come up. Because one of the things, because I, I, I tweeted an interview um, that Tech Decisions did with me, which they published yesterday. So I tweeted out and it brought this back to top of mind because one of the things, the, the, the big thing that interview was about was about the human pipeline problem. Like too many, too many open positions, not enough people to fill the positions, which I take a contrary viewpoint on to that, but that's not the question you asked me. Um, but the reason it brought, it brought this to mind is because actually our problem in cyber, I think anyway, our problem is not a human pipeline problem it's a data pipeline problem because even if we continue to throw bodies at jobs in information security the pipeline of incoming data to deal with is only ever increasing it's not a problem we're going to fix just by throwing bodies at it yeah um so i was looking for numbers that justified that that perspective um and the truth is there's no way that the typical security operations center of today even right now is staffed to the levels required to deal with the information um that that is being delivered to that function mm -hmm. um i found a report which was back in this was back in 2017 so you know it only gets worse at the moment um but it was a a report of just the financial <laughs> sector but again i think it's widely applicable in in other verticals yeah. uh 60 of, of banks um that responded to this uh study by ovum said that they routinely dealt with more than a hundred thousand alerts a day in their sock. A day? Uh, yeah, 100,000 wow. plus, 60% of the financial institutions, 100,000 plus alerts uh, per day to deal with. So I thought that's that sounds like a big number, but how does that impact people? Takes about 25 minutes per alert to do the triage. Um, you might have, you know, you find out it's a false positive, you might need to downgrade it, you might need to upgrade it. Mm. Uh, you've got to do a certain amount of like upfront triage on, on the alerts that come in, right? Yeah. So if it's 25 minutes per alert for 100,000 alerts, uh, then you have 41,667 hours of work to do in a 24-hour period, which means that in your SOC, you need 1,736 people just to do the triage. And that's what 24 hours with that a So it's like, that, that for me, that's the, the, the super quick win uh, where AI needs to be really uh, laser focused right now is, how do we hand all that stuff, the 25 minute jobs mm. off to the greatest extent possible to automation? Well, um, I think I, I used to sell, obviously, you know, I used to sell a lot of Microsoft products and their Sentinel solution is backed by a lot of AI. Because yeah, that it needs to be. But I think the, the, the reason why that works is because it's connected to, if you've, if you've hooked it up to like the XDR solution that Microsoft's got and you've hooked it up to, the authentication solution you've hooked it up to the network monitoring and you've hooked it up to all of the other things that kind of have to feed into it then it can use the ai to kind of understand what that alert really means whether it's a false positive or not but if you've just got the sock if you's just got a scene there yeah what that's, that that's why sim is under pressure from xdr in general in right. in the industry because the sim was sim was relatively noisy and relatively I don't want to say underdeployed, under underdeveloped in terms of its capabilities. It, it could have gone so much further and really never appeared to. And XDR has kind of stolen a march on that mm. uh, because in security, context is king. The more you know uh, about everything that surrounds any given alert or event, um, the more accurate uh, your decision is going to be based on the data that that you have because you have that context. And like you say, the more things you can hook it up to, and whether it's you know. Uh, whether you're using, well, whichever vendor you're using, it doesn't really matter as long as you can take feeds um, from multiple different sources that and contextualize correlate. what's happening, right? And let you make decisions 
um, based on the context that you have. And then when it comes to investigations and threat hunting as well, actually the other side of the coin, uh, it simplifies all of that because if you have a an event which is a detonation of a payload, that's the end of the chain. So you need to trace that back and do root cause analysis and find patient zero and all that kind of stuff. If you don't have the context, the lateral movement, the patch levels, the uh, the, the, the vulnerability exposure, the uh, misuse of accounts, uh, the, the the misuse of lull bins so you can track lateral movement across the estate, okay. you, that, you're never going to be successful. But what AI will do if we can get it into that triage function is a lot of people are like, oh, well, what happens to the SOC then? All, all those people are going to have no purpose in life anymore. Absolutely untrue. What it's going to do is elevate all of those people because it takes all that donkey work away and it lets you become... Um, be more focused and develop your expertise in that field without all the shit that leads to burnout. Yeah. The, I, got, I, got, I got asked to be on a panel the other day about whether SOC would replace, would be replaced by AI, like whether the SOC, like the entire SOC would be replaced by AI. But they were looking for someone that would was going to say yes. Um, and I was like, I don't think you're going to find anyone that is going to say, yeah, we're going to replace our entire SOC with artificial intelligence because that, A, it sounds risky. B, I don't think the technology is there yet, like by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, yeah, that's just a bit of, I think it's just a bit too much of a wild, like. I reckon if you if you looked hard enough, you could probably find a vendor that would say that. Um, yeah. Because there's always one. Yeah, probably, yeah. Um, uh, but that's about it. Um, yeah, I think the thing that like what you're saying what you were saying there about allowing people to actually focus on what they need to focus on because like you were saying the amount of hours that's actually needed in the SOC just to do the triaging that don't even include that don't include the hours like you said to do the investigation to do any remediation work and that's uh, the interesting and important stuff right I mean that's obviously you need the signals uh but the, the more that you can automate your your signals intelligence if you want to um, call it that mm -hmm. um then um the, the more effective your investigation and root cause analysis and remediation, because <laughs> that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Yeah. It's not just about finding out what went wrong. It's about making sure it doesn't go wrong again. Mm -hmm. um, the more time you have to do that, the, the healthier your organization, the better the risk posture of your organization, and the more agile you become from a security perspective. You can, you can move more quickly and you can help your organization to do more because I don't think any of us, well, with the exception of, I, I suppose, me, because I work, for a security vendor, but very few people work for organizations whose job is security. The organization's job is brewing beer or whatever. Right? I don't know yeah. why that came to mind first. Um, <laughs> but it's about but it's about making sure you can brew better beer more quickly. That's what your security job is about. It's not about doing security at the end of the day. No, and I thought that was an interesting point you were saying a minute ago as well about being more proactive and doing threat hunting rather than reacting to situations which i think is a lot of organizations because they're that bogged down like you said with all these alerts coming in and they haven't got time to they haven't got time to do the like run of the mill things that they need to do with security like patching policies yeah. in a lot of places that have been up to date so there's no way on earth that people can be proactively going out there and threat hunting and looking for holes within their systems i mean that's why they employ like pen testers i'm guessing like what, what we do what i do um i mean i don't do that i sell it um but yeah um that's kind of like either you have to rely on outsourcing that kind of thing because you haven't physically got the time because you're spending so much time like plugging holes and yeah like you said looking at alerts that are not for me there's for me there's a big difference between the the threat hunting and the pen testing side of things there's a really strong argument for pen testing being external um because anytime you've been involved in the conception um design installation and maintenance of a thing um there is a strong possibility you'll never see its weaknesses or its blind spots because it's your baby, right? You you designed it, you built it, uh, and you're the best in the world, so nothing's wrong with it. It's, like, it's like reading your own document. When you read yeah. your own document, you don't see all the spelling mistakes. Do you? Yeah, totally that. And that, so for me, there's a really strong argument for having other people look at your stuff. Uh, but for threat hunting, there's a there's a very strong argument for, for having that. Uh, Internal. Uh, at least a large part of that expertise internal because you have the context. It's your organization, it's your business processes 
um, it's your business vertical. Uh, you know what threat intelligence is most important to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have contacts with other people within your particular industry where you might share intelligence. So there's a strong argument for for the threat hunting stuff being more internal focused, but the pen testing stuff um, being like a second opinion. Yes. So. Rob, you're being, you're being very quiet. Have you got any thoughts on this? This is a this is an issue that okay with hindsight it was obvious that this was going to to come about. But actually, we didn't even need hindsight to see this was going to be an issue because the the cybersecurity industry is uh, a development of the physical security industry within a very different sector. But you know, when people first put locks on doors, baddies went through windows, and then they put locks on windows, and baddies worked out a way of jimmying locks on doors or windows so it's it's evolutionary it's very easy to to move on to the next stage why did cybersecurity and this this is very unfair but why when stuff is being developed was it not being developed with an eye to the worst possible people out there as opposed to Silos. That's that was the problem for years, Rob. And and to a certain extent, even what we were just talking about, socks is a reflection of that today. A sock is yeah. still a silo within a business, and I kind of have issues with with it, a sock being bolted onto an organization. There are, yeah. there are more integrated ways to do that, uh, but it's that's the way that security came about uh, and has existed. For since its inception is that it was stuck on to the rest of the business yes, and yeah, businesses yeah. continue to operate in silos before i came to, to trend which was a long time ago now admittedly but in this particular space i don't think that much has changed that quickly i was working at a systems integrator who doesn't exist anymore they were called eds they're part of hp now um, and i was a security and privacy architect there so i was responsible for designing the security for various mostly government or law enforcement type systems um, and what amazed me, and I went there from a vendor. So I had, I was in uh, tech support at McAfee and I'd gone to be an architect at EDS. Um, what amazed me when I got to EDS was the, the extent to which silos and commercial interest were embedded within business process. And it was the root cause of a lot of failure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, for example, the, endpoint security system of choice of EDS. I think I can say all this without fear because they don't exist anymore. The endpoint security system of EDS uh, was one particular software vendor and you were not allowed to recommend anything other than that one of choice unless the customer had specifically asked you for something else. So mm-hmm. even if if you, the security professional and architect, felt that that wasn't up to the job in this instance for whatever reason, you couldn't suggest anything else because of commercial pressure. So that was the commercial thing. And then the silo thing was everybody operated in dedicated and discrete teams. There was, for example, the application development team. There was the desktop infrastructure team. There was the server infrastructure team. There was the network infrastructure team. And there was the security team. And it was almost like a, 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 well, it was actually was a process that things would be developed and passed down. So you would have the network infrastructure being built. It would be passed then to the server infrastructure team who had somewhere they could put their servers. And then the endpoint infrastructure team would design their stuff on to, to connect to those servers and where it would go and how it would be put together. And then finally, it would all be given to the security and privacy team and people would say, right, secure that. I think that's, is- that's a massive issue because you end up retrofitting the security into the products then and then it's never quite right whereas i think security needs to be starting to be seen as like a business-wide function so like hr is or like it usually is um it kind of services every area of the organization so it shouldn't just be like you said a bolt-on service at the end but i mean a lot of organizations do that now when we get asked to pen test it's because someone sat and developed an app They've released it and then gone, shit, let's have a look at that and see whether there's anything wrong with it. Whereas I keep trying to say to customers, if you get as involved in the software development lifecycle and when you're releasing Delta changes, we'll just give it a quick once over because A, it will take a lot less fucking time than just like to do an entire app test. 
and B, you'll be bolting in the security as you go in. So if you've made a little change, then we can just have a, we can have a look at that like teeny tiny bit of code or whatever it is that you've written and make sure that there's no holes in it. And, and then this, can... this is something that um, uh, security automation and orchestration has really evolved to attempt to solve. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also kind of the, the headspace that DevOps has evolved out from. And obviously, you know, love or hate the name DevSecOps is, is becoming uh, an important thing as well, where it is, um, it is still an iterative process, but it is a, you know, it's that figure eight, it's an infinite loop uh, mm -hmm. process uh, where each of those functions is embedded into the process and there is cross communication at all points. Um, so that from a security perspective, for example, if you're building an app, then you need to be able to look at the, secure, the security of the build and the security of the process. You need to be able to look at the security of any external libraries that you're pulling into your code build. Um, you need to look for uh, vulnerabilities once the build process has been complete. You might want different security uh, rules based on whether that, that built thing is in uh, testing or if it's in deployment. You'll certainly want different response rules based on those different things. Um, you'll need to be, you'll need to, to, to check uh, configurations, uh, make sure that you're not embedding things like passwords uh, and, and keys um, yeah. within things as they get deployed, make sure that stuff that contains that kind of thing doesn't get pushed to production. And obviously you need then to secure the things that are in production. Um, and all of those teams, development, security and operations need to be working as one, which is what um, DevSecOps and DevOps is really all about. It's not a technology, it's, a, it's more of a, of a philosophy it's a way of a way of working and and so there there definitely are you know developments which are really positive that have that have come about to address the problems caused by silos but there is so much technical debt within organizations because people have taken short-term decisions mm -hmm. um, because it's the path of least resistance and then that's where you start to accrue interest on your technical debt which will come back to uh, to bite you at the end of the day. You know, it's funny when you think about the the ease with which now it's possible to circumvent all of those silos anyway. You know, I'm thinking to that network team, server team, desktop team, but you look at how um, organizations do business now, all you need as a marketing department or as a research department um, to extend your organization's perimeter into the cloud is a credit card and and you know, no one's going to know that you've done it. You go and spin up your own little environment in AWS. You populate it with a with a bunch of internal data. You misconfigure it, and there it is in an S3 bucket exposed to the world. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, the security department, the IT department, nobody even knew that that existed outside of the team that decided to do so. Um, so, I mean, as ever, there are strong arguments, but they only get stronger for integration, uh, automation um, and discovery, automation of discovery as well, because discovery is one of the key things that attackers are doing now. That's one of the key changes in the cybersecurity landscape is that it's not that shotgun, uh, scattergun approach of like fire out as much spam as possible and maybe I'll get a few clicks um, and that'll result in a few infections. There is, there is a lot of that about. I was watching, I can't remember what crap program is that comes on BBC at like 10 a.m. Um, it's like crime watch crime, crime watch or something like that it's not bad celebrities buy antiques with other people's money or something like that <laughs> yeah something like that. no it's like crime watch but they always have like a section on about cyber crime um but all of the time every single cyber crime that they're talking about is literally a spray and pray yeah here's a royal mail text message that you might have received here's a dpd message you might have received and it's always the same stuff every morning but I think the fact that he's on TV all the time, people must be clicking on it. People must be getting done over by it. Yeah, it's, I, it's yeah. always somebody's first day online. Every day it's a whole bunch of people's yeah. first day online. Or it's the first time they've had their own email account. Or it's the mm -hmm. first time they connected to Twitter or some other social media, right? Every day there are God knows what number, but some unimaginable number of people who it's their first day. So that stuff will always continue to work. But if you look at... Um, threat reports over the last two, three years, thing like ransomware is probably the best example, but it's indicative of, of a wider trend. Mm -hmm. um, it has massively narrowed its sites. 
uh, and it is hugely professionalized. It used to be very automated spray and pray consumer facing threat. Mm. Um, but now it is highly researched. A whole new industry of initial access vendors or access as a service has sprung up because you know the world of cybercrime is this whole world of niche vendors and niche services. It's not like one person is responsible for our evil and they do everything to do with every campaign. Uh, they buy services from other criminal vendors, uh, whether that's crypting or packing or botnet services or, you know, uh, you know, our evil is delivered through other Trojans, for example. So different criminal gangs will, will cooperate mm -hmm. on, on a commercial basis. Yeah. Um, but it's high, it's a highly specialized thing. So now if you want to um, get into a certain company, you will approach an initial access vendor or an access as a service vendor, uh, and you will ask for access to that company. And, and in, you know, in all likelihood, they'll have it. If they don't have it, they'll attempt to get it for you. And then you just have valid credentials and off you go. Mm -hmm. And it becomes then human versus human, not human versus really dumb automated spray and pray malware. Because when it's human versus human, the attacker is in, they can take their time, they can be low and slow, they can live off the land, they can use PowerShell, uh, they can use you know, Mimikatz, all of the, 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 the lull bins and... and, and um, not quite malicious tools uh, like Cobalt, Cobalt Strike um, against you yeah. um, to spend time exploring and mapping out your infrastructure to identify um, assets of interest and of value to exfiltrate those first before triggering the encryption. Um, because now we're seeing not just ransomware, but we're seeing double, triple, even quadruple extortion mm -hmm. from a single ransomware attack, which is yeah. like the first level of extortion is pay us money and we'll give you your data back. The second level is if you don't pay us money, we're going to start leaking your data and more and more gangs have jumped on that. Yeah. Um, the triple extortion is as well as that, by the way, in this data is all of your customer data. So we're going to start contacting them as well, either to extort them directly or to use them as leverage to get you to pay up. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fourth level that is becoming increasingly popular is to throw a complimentary denial of service attack on top of that. But it's all ways to get you to pay the ransom. And actually, if you look at an example, a recent example, JBS Meets, I think it was mm -hmm. JBS. Yeah, was JBS. Yeah. Um, they ended up paying 11 million in ransom, but actually when they paid that ransom, um, the vast majority of their systems had already been recovered. They were paying the 11 million because of the secondary leverage of not exposing their data. Yeah. And and attackers are definitely looking at that now and saying, well, but, that's probably our, our biggest lever is the I, fact that we have the data, not that we've encrypted the data. That's what I always think about when people pay the ransom, though. And I'm like, well, you think I mean, I know why people pay the ransom and I'm not judging companies that have to do that because of whatever reason. Um, but I always think you're giving money to criminals like just because they've said, give us 11 million quid and then that's it. We'll go away. Well, they're not. Why would you trust them? Because weirdly, it's an industry that's built on trust, isn't it? Ransomware. Zero, oh, it's an it's an zero, odd zero trust approach to ransomware. You, the thing is, their their whole business model thrives on trust because if they break your trust as a victim, right? If they break your trust, you pay them, and then you don't get a decryption key, which is how you know that was the initial business model. Um, then nobody will ever pay any ransomware. Ever again, it breaks the whole business model if you take the trust out. You have to, as a victim, trust that your attacker will give you what they promise when you hand over your money. Mm -hmm. And if it becomes demonstrable that that's not happening, then nobody will pay any, any ransoms to anyone anymore. So they have to keep that trust up. And the same thing is true about leaked data. If it becomes apparent that you pay someone not to leak your data and then your data is leaked, that the, the leverage that you get from that threat goes away as well. So the whole business model, ironically, is built on trust. <laughs> Which we will come back to after the news. Okay, here's the news. The Internet Archive has launched a campaign against tech regulation by setting up a way forward machine. 
semi-parodying its famous Wayback Machine archive insight. The Wayforward Machine paints a picture of the internet in 2046, smeared with censorship, governmental interference and more. When a user types in any well-known address, they are presented with a number of pop-ups, all of which suggest a nightmarish future where governmental surveillance reigns supreme and privacy is heavily frowned upon. It's like China and Facebook made a baby together. In scumbag news, a malware peddler has created a fake website posing as Amnesty International to serve gullible victims with software that claims to protect users against Pegasus malware. Preying on fears about this critical mobile bug, this development takes the usual evolution of malware download, download laws and picks a particularly nasty vector tapping into the market for protection against advanced threats. Stay vigilant as this supposed protection is actually a rat. Incidentally, so is the guy that created it. And finally, IKEA has removed hidden security cameras from its warehouse in Peterborough after an employee spotted one in the ceiling void whilst using the toilet. Workers at the flat pack furniture giant were concerned that they may have been spied on while in the bathroom. The discovery was made when the lights were switched off. A member of staff spotted what appeared to be a small red light between the panels of a suspended ceiling. Upon further investigation, multiple hidden cameras were found in both the men's and ladies' bathrooms. Whoever thought this was a good idea was definitely missing a few screws. Starting in the southwest, the weather that usually warm weather we've had is resulting in a growing area of high pressure around Exeter. Nothing to do with the weather, that's just on the roads. Historically, of course, this is mining country, so keep an eye out for adventurous types wearing head torches. Moving on up into the Midlands, we see thick cloud cover. No precipitation to speak of, just badly named products and poorly designed user interfaces. The picture changes as we move further east. Keep an eye out for sin flooding, especially in low-lying areas. More or less the same picture moving north, though obviously wetter, colder and different accents. Don't expect too much change as we move into the weekend. Expect patches of sunshine and broken cloud with the occasional shower. Misty in the mornings and, of course, a high chance of ransomware. Thank you. So we've talked about where things are. I'm very interested to know. Actually, I've got two questions for you, Ring. Uh, and I'm going to ask them both because then there's a chance that you might answer them both. If I ask one, you'll just run away with that answer and I won't ever get the <laughs> question in. I'm so the worst guest. Nobody you... will ever invite me on anything ever again. Oh, I, I, I don't think you or I need to worry about that. So my two questions are this. Question number one is, what do you see the future looking like from a cybersecurity perspective? And my second question is, if you were in a position to start all over again, if we were to say today cybersecurity exists, how would we implement it in such a way that we weren't on the back foot? My answer to the second question is: is I would I would learn to play the guitar properly uh, and and go and be a guitarist. <laughs> My answer to the second question. Fair enough. Uh, I can't that. Um, the, yeah, the, so we just finished, Amy mentioned it earlier on, the, the Project 2030 thing, which actually we released the research paper for, I have to dis full disclosure here, they've asked me to leave more gaps <laughs> when I talk so that I can be edited. <laughs> that could wow. well come back to bite you, Mr. Perry. <laughs> Um, we released the research paper, Project 2030, uh, for RSA. Um, myself and, and Vic Baines um, uh, worked on and, and published uh, uh, Project 2030, which was like a successor to 
um, a previous project which had we published in uh, or which had been published in 2013, um, Project 2020, which was a project, forward-looking project under the auspices of ICSPA, an organization called ICSPA, who I don't think are around anymore, but led primarily by Europol, which I had been asked to be involved with. Uh, and we published that in 2013, trying to anticipate what the world of 2020 might look like um, and what the possible criminal opportunities might be. And you were surprisingly accurate, I think, as well, weren't you? We did a review. I was going to say, when 2020 came around, we said, okay, let's look um, at Trend Micro. We said, let's look at Project 2020, which I said wasn't our own publication, but we were involved in it. And, and let's see how good that was. So... Um, we published a review of 2020 and it was surprisingly accurate. Well, I say surprisingly, actually Vic and I would quite often be messaging each other in the, in the intervening years, intervening seven years between 2013 and 2020 and go, Oh look, here's another new story, which is one of those predictions. You can, you could watch it coming true piece by piece, which was very cool. Yeah. Um, and of course we decided then that we would do it again. So now we're looking at 2030, how might technology and society develop and what might the criminal opportunities be um, as a result of that development? Um, and it's, it's, it's a really interesting proposition. So what we've done is we, same as with 2020, we set the whole thing in a fictional uh, nation state of New San Jaban uh, because it allows us to take every possible um, credible advance yeah. uh, and put it all in one place because it means then you can identify interdependencies between those different things and the linkages and points of acceleration or delay um, and, and be much more um, flexible and accurate in your predictions. Yeah. And there were a few things that really stood out um, in terms of um, technology drivers uh, that surfaced through. So we, we had to do a few things. We had to establish a baseline. Uh, and and the, the key thing for us about establishing the baseline was looking at reports by organizations like Interpol, like Europol, um, like the United Nations, uh, that their sort of current state of the world reports when it comes to technology and cyber. Mm -hmm. And then we looked at the 12 month forward looking things that are published by all the cybersecurity vendors every year to kind of get an idea of where the, the weight of industry opinion lay. Um, and then we did a lot of horizon scanning of um, uh, technical publications, uh, patent applications, news stories, um, and then kind of you, set ourselves. You, you actually put real life research into it. Then it's not just like shit you've made up in your head. You've like no, 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 no. We fully oh, the methodology and stuff as well. Yeah, it was, and and that was part of the reason of doing the review of 2020 because we reviewed the methodology as well as the outcome and said. Yeah does this methodology stand up? Can we use this framework to do another thing? Or what bits do we need to improve? So yeah, it's, it's, pro it's scientific research, but it's also, you know, it's future thinking, it's futurism. So there's a lot of imagination required. Yeah. Um, and actually, what was also really apparent as, as um, Vic and I were chatting through it, is that we had to continually restrain ourselves. I remember one of the things that would frequently come up is no, no, we're talking about 2030 here, not 2050, because it's so easy to, to expect things to happen too quickly. Mm. Um, but then you think about some of the things that we do talk about, we, you know, the key drivers that emerged out of that baselining activity uh, were, you know, one of the biggest was definitely the impact of, of AI in particular, natural language processing and um, generative adversarial networks, the deep X, technology stuff that we see today. Me and you talked a little bit about natural language processing, didn't we, when I was pestering you for help with this AI, um, this AI panel. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that we were talking about the fact that people won't necessarily need to be able to code or do anything kind of technical because you'll have a machine there and you can just say, go and find all of the entry points into financial services institutions in London. And because it understands that natural language, yeah. and the, the AI technology that's kind of there, then it can go and do that. And it's, it's so that's some of the stuff from the criminal um, possibilities with AI that, that we mentioned in the report is that um, it's twofold, really. One of the primary and probably earliest uses of 
AI from a criminal perspective will be in obfuscation and evasion. Um, right. It's a natural evolution of things like fast flux um, uh, botnets and things where you know, criminals are doing all that they can um, to so that it's difficult to attribute activities to individual threat actors, to individual geographies, um, yep. and to, yeah, to, to obfuscate detection uh, and to evade capture, basically, those things. Right. So AI will definitely play a huge role pen, in that. Pen, te pen testing as, a, um, as an industry itself is going to have to work out how it keeps up with that kind of thing, though, isn't it? Because if threat actors have got that kind of technology, then we're going to have to be able to expose where all of those entry points are that an artificial intelligence solution can find. So, yeah, and the AI, the thing with AI is it's not constrained to acting and thinking in a human way. So at the moment when you are pen testing or when uh, a threat actor is attempting to gain access or execute a payload or whatever, uh, it's still human versus human or human versus defenders technology in one way or another. Yeah. The, the threat is operating at human speed, but more importantly, it's using human thought processes and human logic. Yeah. As soon as you allow an AI to take over, chances are it would still want to operate at human speed because the very fact that it's operating at, at machine speed would be a massive red flag, right? So it would, it would have to slow itself down to not identify itself, yeah. but it wouldn't have to think in the same way that a human thinks so it would be all the things that we've learned to identify as indicators of lateral movement for example mm -hmm. might begin to look completely different even unrecognizable and my, my my favorite way to express that is to think of the banana right <laughs> which sounds <laughs> but think of the banana as you rock it already today rick we don't need to talk about bananas well. <laughs> <laughs> with a banana right? as a human when you hand in most cases a human a banana they'll see the stalk bit on the end and to a human brain you go oh that looks like a handle i'm going to open it with the handle but it's actually the the least efficient way to open a banana and if you what? hand a banana to a monkey who has a totally different thought process they don't even look at the handle other than perhaps as a handle to hold on but they just squeeze it at the other end mm -hmm. and it pops open nice and easily um that's the difference between you know if if you constantly approach something with a human mindset mm -hmm. your ai adversary will not be acting in that way and you won't see the things that your ai adversary is doing but on the flip side of that on the more positive side oh here's a gap on the more positive side um, it means that the threat actors themselves won't necessarily understand what their AI technology is doing or why. Mm. Because it's relatively incomprehensible. One of the defining characteristics of AI is a lot of the time we don't know why it makes the decisions that it makes, um, that, you know, the thought process behind it. We just know that it works. That's kind of a, a, a problem, if you like, with AI, the getting under the hood of it. Um, so if attackers themselves don't understand how or why the tools they're using are working, it may offer um, unforeseen opportunities for disruption, whether that's uh, law enforcement disruption uh, or whether that's uh, technology disruption. There was a great thing about an AI-assisted autonomous vehicle um, and the, the, the car uh, was driving on the road and... Uh, at some point, it would have great difficulty in identifying where the road was. Most of the time, it was fine, but then at other times, it was having really great difficulty staying on the on the tarmac. Um, and the question was, well, why is that happening? Why is this failing? Uh, and it took a very long time to work out that the AI that was making those decisions had decided that if it had uh, grass on one side, then the thing on the other side was road. But it got into great difficulty when there's no more grass, because that was the thing it was using as its determining yeah. factor because that's how it had taught itself and it's being able to unravel those those learning decisions that's that's a bit of a, a problem uh in certain models i i'm personally very disappointed that project 2030 isn't basically the film i robot well it's a film though <laughs> it's a film i was look at the look look at these this is the script the script for the actors mm -hmm. um and it's uh I don't even know if it's total page count. No, it doesn't have a total page count, but it, this is all the text for the whole entire series of nine episodes. 
and this even there. bigger document, this is the shot list. So this is every camera shot for, for every scene. Ooh, previews. There you yeah. go. Um, and we have done nine episodes, and each episode is currently longer than we wanted it to be, but I think it's really good. So I don't think they're going to get much shorter. Um, they're about eight or nine minutes each. So if you put that together, we've effectively made a feature film. We're just breaking it up into small pieces. And there's November, our... November this year, November. And there's November. all of Rick's Oscars in the background from previous. Actually. A lot of those are from video work. Most of them are from video work, actually. Oh. I know. Um, there's a few that are. So this one, this is the best one. This is the show-off one, this dolphin. From Cannes. Cannes Film Festival. Yeah, that was Ooh. for uh, one of the interactive games that we made, Data Center Attack. Okay. Uh, but this is, a, you know, this is a telly award. This is a telly award. This is a telly award. This is a Vega award. I mean, this... There's a lot, and, and hopefully we'll... He says I'm using him to further my own celebrity, but clearly... <laughs> Rick's the biggest celeb going. <laughs> I, think, I think this could possibly be uh, the pinnacle of our series. Yeah. We'll win awards. Let's submit it for some awards. We have got Dave Kennedy on next week, so, you know. Get there. Well, there you go. See, I'm just a warm-up <laughs> act. What can I say? <laughs> oh... Oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, so I think this has been a very interesting conversation. What has else, indeed. Yeah, what else do we need to talk about? You're going to have to edit this bit out anyway because I don't know what we're talking about now because Rick distracted me with shiny things. You distracted <laughs> you with shiny things. <laughs> yes, it's, you're a magpie, except because that's not what magpies do. But aside from that, you are a magpie. I know. I got told that I distract and derail things all the time. Do you have that thing? I so this is, I pick up stupid things from friends and acquaintances sometimes. So now, whenever I see um, a single magpie, I have to say out loud, "Hello, Mr. Magpie. How's Mrs. Magpie?" Every single time I see a single magpie, I say that. Yeah, out loud. As a result of my children, I have to salute a single magpie. Ah, the magpie. And, and then almost immediately see a second magpie, which means I've ruined it. Uh, <laughs> And I do, unfortunately, now every time I'm driving, even if I'm driving on my own, have to shout out yellow car every time I see a yellow car. <laughs> Brilliant. I have to shout sheeps if I see sheeps. Um, I used to have to call them um, clouds on sticks for quite a long time. My brother okay. thought, um, you know, like power, power cooling towers, the cooling towers are power stations. My brother thought they were cloud machines. Cloud factories. We have them here in Warsaw. Mm. Anyway, that was we've totally derailed now. What else, what we're going to talk about for 10 more minutes? Do we need anything else? Or should we have a final thought? What do you think, Mr. Lancaster? This has been one of, well, so far, one of our most fascinating talks. And it's been wonderful to hear from you, Rick. So thank you for joining us. Could you perhaps give us a final thought that we could take away? Yes, I can, I can give you a final thought. And I was thinking of my final thought just as you were requesting my final thought. And my final thought is this. <laughs> Go and get the company that you work for to sign up for Respect and Security because it's a really important initiative um, that will go some way towards correcting um, the toxic parts of the culture within the information security industry. That's my final thought. Go and do that. It would be very, very good. We launched earlier this year. Our target was to have uh, 50 companies signed up by the end of this year. We hit that target in a week, less than a week, six days. Um, and we and the, the, the people signing up, um, the request to sign up, haven't stopped coming in since then. So it's exceeded beyond our wildest expectations uh but it still has a very long way to go so my final thought is that go and get your employer or if you are the employer go and sign up for uh, on an organizational basis respect and security i think that's an excellent final thought thank you for think finally thinking it brilliant um next week we will have the lovely dave kennedy but for now we have been amy and rob and you have been rick ferguson um, thank you very much for coming and we will see you all soon. Bye.